This podcast is primarily recorded and produced on the territories of the Huron-Wendat and Haudenosaunee peoples in Cotaraque or Kingston by its colonial name. We center the rightful stewards of this land in order to unsettle our fight for collective liberation. And, I add, we say this specifically not for purposes of so-called reconciliation, because that's dead, but to affirm our solidarities with Indigenous folks resisting colonialism and imperialism globally, for none of us are free until we all are. The fight for collective liberation includes dismantling settler states, and all states TBH, but in particular I'm mentioning settler states, that rely on global systems of transnational exploitation and ongoing genocides of indigenous people to maintain power for the few at the expense of mass death. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. We'll be posting our statement in support of Palestinian liberation on Instagram sometime this week, but if you're listening in the future, it'll probably be posted already. Welcome to another episode of Queer Muslim Resistance, a podcast from Oprah Kingston. My name is Maha and I am one of your hosts. This episode, I have a conversation with Ejil about revisiting queer Islam like a steadfast friendship, the rise of Islamists in the UK by the 1990s, the need for queer Muslim in-person meetups, and taking to the streets as safely as possible. Taylor and I have a debrief and bring up a whole bunch of resources, so please do make sure to check them out if you'd like to, and they're listed in the episode description as always. Remember that we are on Patreon. Um, We have three different membership levels where you can pledge to support us financially with 5, 10, or 15 Canadian dollars a month. Please do share and consider providing support if possible. And without further ado, here's Ejil! Salam, Mijal. Wassalam. How are you doing? Yeah, um, I'm okay, thank you. Awesome. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So your pronouns, your background, where you're based, and whatever else you'd like to share? Yeah, my name's Ejil Khan. My pronouns are he, him. I'm based in the UK in a place called Luton, uh, 30 miles from London. And I was born there. I'm 46 years old, mm-hmm. well, 46 and a half. And I've lived in Luton most of my life. Awesome, thank you. So what role has Islam had in your life thus far? Islam has always been a constant companion. Mm-hmm. I would describe it as through good mm-hmm. times and bad. It's been there for me. You know, when I've lapsed, it's been there for me. It's like an old friend, you know, you can pick mm-hmm. up from where you left off. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, it's one of those friends that, you know, you might not have spoken to for years, but the next time you pick up the phone or, you know, you meet them, you know, you pick up from where you left off because it's so easy, that relationship. Mm-hmm. you know uh, so in that sense easy in the sense that you know um it's open you know and they're there for you they're loyal and you know it's unconditional mm-hmm. that's really beautiful i th- i love how you described islam as a constant companion because a lot of the time we're so taught to fear islam or like to approach islam from like such a fear-based approach and like thinking of God and Islam and faith as something that we can always come back to because we have a loyal relationship with it is such such a beautiful sentiment. So yeah, thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And so you're the coordinator of the Muslim LGBT network. Could you tell me a little bit more about the organization and your involvement in it? Yeah, I'm the coordinator and I'm one of the founding members of it. Okay. Um, we're based in Newton where I live mm-hmm. and that's because Luton has a large Muslim community, mm-hmm. um, one of the largest in the UK. Luton's um, a town, it's a provincial town, but has 30 mosques, 
So for the size of the town, the demographics, we have a large Muslim population. It's not the biggest in the UK by any means, but for the size of you know, our mm -hmm. geography, like mm -hmm. I said, we're 30 mosques, we've had a presence here for half a century mm -hmm. in this town, Muslims, who came from South Asia uh, predominantly. Mm -hmm. And Luton's one of those towns in Britain and cities. There's two others, there's Bradford and Leicester, where white British people are now in the minority. So there's three places in the UK where white British people are in the minority and Luton is one of them where I was born. Mm -hmm. So that tells you a little bit about the place I was born. Yeah, for sure. And mm -hmm. our, you know, organization, you know. Mm -hmm. So what do you do as part of your role as a coordinator? As coordinator, I try to coordinate events. Mm -hmm. So I try to share events that's happening um, kind of you know, internationally and nationally, because sometimes obviously because the UK has an international population of expats from mm -hmm. not just South Asia, all over the world. United mm -hmm. Kingdom is one of the most diverse places on earth, as is London. And mm -hmm. London is only 30 miles from Luton. Mm -hmm. So London is one of the most global cities on earth. It's one of the most expensive cities on earth. The large Arab population, you know, the Arabs first from Saudi Arabia would come shake to buy up lot property. Even now, you know, a lot of the Emirates, you know, Emiratis buy properties. The whole cable car ride is called the Emirates ride in Thames. You know, it goes across the Thames. So, and you know, you would have seen it from the 70s onwards in London, the Sheikhs going shopping in Harrods and, you know, Harrods was owned by an Egyptian, you know, Muhammad al Fayed. And obviously the South Asian population, which is massive from India, Pakistan, ex-colonies, you know, the Commonwealth now, but was previously British India, as you have in your country in Canada, a large South Asian population. My cousins live in um, Canada. I have relatives who, you mm -hmm. know, were born there, who lived there. Uh, not where you are, but mainly like Vancouver um, mm -hmm. sides. So, you know, you have that too, the Commonwealth, and we have that here. So I, I tap into that, you know, being a coordinator of that, because I was born in Luton, I'm 46 and a half. I'm considered an elder in my community. Mm -hmm. I have siblings in their 50s, mm -hmm. you know. So, what I've got is um, I have an inlay with the London crowd as well because I have a background in the media. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I've studied in the media, I've worked in the media uh, for a long time. So, and I knew there, there's an intelligentsia within London from the South Asian community that are artists, um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, theatre practitioners, there are writers, you know, um, every form of the arts you'll find. Um, South Asians in there. And they're not all just necessarily Muslims because obviously South Asian, Hindu, Sikhs, Buddhist, but part of that is the Bangladeshi, Pakistani, and Indian Muslim community. Mm -hmm. We kind of fit into that. And I've worked in the theatre, I've written for the theatre, mm -hmm. I've written for other platforms too. I'm a writer as well as an activist. Mm -hmm. I have been. And I work a lot with the communities in London. I work with the South Asian communities I've done. I worked on this project called The Season of Bangla Drama in Tabahamdas. We have a, the largest Bengali population outside of Bengal. Mm -hmm. We live in, you know, uh, Tower Hamlets. Mm -hmm. And one of the, you know, the mayor was a uh, Bangladeshi uh, of that area of Tower Hamlets. Now, the mayor of London is a Pakistani, Sadiq Khan, who I know as well. Mm -hmm. And um, so, just I tap into that. Coming only 30 miles from London, not that far from London. You know, I'm in London within 22 minutes from the train. I can mm -hmm. get to, because we're 30 miles. So, I'm within the commuter belt of London and I tap into that. But what uh, is different? about my organization is, is that we share events happening worldwide. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we have people who are expats from Pakistan, mm -hmm. Bangladesh, you know, Nigeria, any Muslim country you could name. And they want to know what's happening in their country. So what we do, we share, because I know that might not be necessarily happening in the UK, mm -hmm. but we share, you know, events that are happening in Canada, because we know we have friends that come from Canada 
So you know, so we live in a global world today, social media, we're all in touch. So what the Muslim LGBT network essentially is, is an organization that shares, um, you know, events and news from across the world. And because of social media, we've been able to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love how social media has been able to provide such an interest, interesting and engaging platform for folks. Like I, for instance, have been able to connect with queer Muslim communities all around the world, doing all sorts of awesome stuff, like workshops and events and stuff, purely through Instagram, actually. Um, so I do encourage folks who are looking for events and ways to connect with queer Muslim folks to check out the Muslim LGBT network. Um, yeah, what sort of events do you plan and share? We share mainly events that uh, social meets, you know, mm -hmm. include um, sometimes there's a play element. It's not uh, compulsory. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's a play element that, you know, if you want to, you can partake and you do not have to. Because I work with another organization called Hidayah mm -hmm. with guidance. They're in Britain. I work with them. And today, actually, after speaking to you, I'm going to be on a panel representing Hidayah. But that's what the Muslim LGBT network is about. We're a network of groups. So, you know, mm -hmm. I've marched with Iman, at, you know, Gay Pride in London. They're mm -hmm. another group. They've been around since 1999 in Britain. They're one of the oldest LGBT Muslim groups in the world. Yeah. They started in London by expats from countries like Pakistan and Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. You know, and so, yeah, that's why I do. I work for Hidayah too, you know, and we organize meetings because a lot of time it's not always politicized. It's not that, mm -hmm. oh, we are queer Muslims coming together. We're going to talk about politics or religion. Sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, we just go bowling. I'll be honest, we just have a coffee together. Mm -hmm. It's about solidarity and knowing that others exist in your town. So what we do is we have events all around Britain. So there mm -hmm. might be one social meet, say, in Manchester. Or, you know, and Great Britain is not one country. People forget, you know, the United Kingdom is mm -hmm. Wales, Scotland, you know, Northern Ireland and England. Mm -hmm. We're very, we have devolved parliaments as well, you know, like, and not everyone knows that, like, you know, so what we do, we share with them too, because we, you know, um, based in the UK mm -hmm. and, you know, we want people to get together. So we have events in different parts of the UK, people do come together, Bristol, they have, they have Manchester, they have, where I live in Luton, London. Mm -hmm. So we've gone national first and now obviously with social media, international, but that's the kind of thing we can organise in the UK, we can organise that. Mm -hmm. So we can say, guys, put a flyer up, we've got to meet. And we'll be meeting here, wherever. and not obviously during the lockdown, because obviously, you know, um, I don't know how it's for you guys. I know that obviously we're going through the pandemic too, but we're on national lockdown at the moment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are restrictions. But mm -hmm. obviously before lockdown, we would just meet up on a social meet. Mm -hmm. But sometimes, you know, like I said, the prayer element can come in. It depends, you know, uh, how people feel about it, but it's not compulsory. So, yeah, you know, we, we meet up. It's mainly social. But, you know, sometimes... We do have other uh, meetings which, you know, might say pertain to some, uh, you know, an issue that's happening in the community, say, mm -hmm. you know, uh, so, you know, rallying against homophobia, you know, prejudice, such like, you know, we, we, we do come together because there was going to be the first ever Muslim uh, pride in Britain. And Iman is another group who I've, you know, been involved with. Mm -hmm. um, and we were going to um, have the march yeah. um, last year in April, but because of the pandemic, we had to postpone it. So it's stuff like that we come together for. And we were going to organize that and we were all ready for that, unfortunately, you know. So, it's, you know, um, it can be for a myriad of reasons mm -hmm. why we come together. Yeah, for sure. And I love how you emphasize the social aspect of your meetups, because like you said, we don't always have to be talking about something. We can, it's, it's, it's so essential to just find and create relationships with queer Muslims, right? 
So I think that's a really wonderful thing that you do. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So how do you use and practice your faith to highlight and fight against injustice? You know, it's incumbent on Muslims, you know, mm -hmm. to uphold human rights. It's there in the Quran. It's enshrined in mm -hmm. our faith, you know, to uphold, you know, peaceful living, mm -hmm. um, the rights of minorities, dignity, the rights to property, you know, the rights to, you know, of women, which were enshrined in Islam, you know, from, you know, the inception of Islam. You know, mm -hmm. women had rights to other religions and other cultures and faiths. They did not. Women had rights to property as did minorities within Islam, religious people don't know that because, you know, um, there's a lot of misinformation out there in the West, particularly after 9-11, and certain things they, they think they know, or they attribute to us. So, you know, I'm a human rights activist, that's not how I necessarily describe myself in the past. You know, because being a person of colour in Great Britain, you know, growing up in a working class town, Mm. I have always mobilized myself against racism or, you know, uh, misogyny, not just in my community, but large, obviously, you know, uh, Britain was a very polarized uh, place growing up for me. I'm, mm. I was born in 1974, so you can mm. imagine growing up in the 80s and 90s in Britain. So it's just that, you know, human rights for me was Islamic rights, which are universal rights. To me, there was no difference. I, I think human rights is universal to everybody across the world, irrespective of faith. And that's in China, that's what I was taught as a child, that, you know, when I went to mosque, when I went to masjid, and mm -hmm. I was told that, you know, human rights are an integral part of uh, being a Muslim. Mm -hmm. And you've seen, like, what I've sent you, my bio, you know, I was on Black Lives Matter platform in Britain, and mm -hmm. I had activists from America contacting me, saying, do something, mm -hmm. you know? And you think, oh, hold on. And, uh, you know, because they understand that some of these activists, they're not all Muslims, but they understand that as Muslims, we were part of the civil rights struggle in America, with Malcolm X mm -hmm. you know, and others who stood with, say, Martin Luther King at the time. You know, the Nation of Islam, you know, were prevalent in that, you know, and Muslims in this country where I live in the UK, obviously our connections to the UK going back hundreds of years and colonialism and, mm -hmm. you know, and my broader fight, like, you know, when I mean fight, I mean, you know, uh, metaphorically, I don't mean physically, as an activist has always encompassed my faith, which has taught me speak up for those who cannot be heard. You know, one of the buyers that said, you said that, didn't it? that was one of my quotes. And that's actually for my faith. It's not something I really came up with myself because we enshrined that, you know, the rights of minorities, the rights of anybody who could be deemed to be vulnerable, you know, and who could be taken advantage of, you know, mm -hmm. we enshrined that in our faith to protect them. Mm -hmm. So that's why I do, and that includes LGBTQ+. And that includes anybody who could be, you know, susceptible to, um, you know, prejudice. Yeah, for sure. And you said to me previously that collective healing benefits all of humankind to grow. So how do you kind of define or think about collective healing? And how does your understanding of Islam inform this practice? What's about self-empowerment? To me, uh, collective healing is about empowering people, giving them the tools to do it themselves, to be organic. It's not about countries go, uh, invading other countries and telling them how to be from different mm -hmm. cultures and faiths. It's about people um, having the tools to do it themselves, empowering people, mm -hmm. you know? And that's only through uh, learning yourself, teaching others, if you feel like you can, teach informing each other in the ways to heal yourself mm -hmm. through trauma, whatever it may be in your life that affects you, you know? Um, it could be, you know, anything pertaining to your well-being. We know that today in modern societies, you know, but even if you look to developing countries too, how those um, communities in those countries 
uh, empowered themselves like you got you know Muhammad Yunus from the Grameen Bank who started a micro investment company in Bangladesh where he would give people micro loans you wouldn't give a handout and it's you know uh, he talked about because he was a professor at Dhaka University so it's about understanding those people you know and anywhere you are in the world that any human being wants um, to you know uh, empower themselves you know the saying you, you know you can give someone a fish a day but if you teach someone to fish they can fish for the rest of their life you know saying mm -hmm. goes along those lines you know like you know um so it, it, it's like that to empower people you know to heal themselves in the sense that but you have to understand um there are certain it's not just to do with faith there's other techniques we use today mindfulness and we have well-being um you know um techniques we can use they can also benefit us be yoga which is not all automatically muslim Mm -hmm. um, traditions, but we have certain, you know, Muslim um, traditions which we uphold, you know, um, mm -hmm. in the sense that we empower others. So what mm -hmm. you do, you know, you try to go into a community to help them help themselves. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think collective healing, what I did with the Muslim Majority Network, I tried to do. It's just like we, we do not just me, obviously, you know, there's, you know, other people with me and I stand on the shoulders of giants, you know, collective healing is just that. It's about Communities coming together to tell you what the problem in their communities, be it you in Ontario or me in Luton or in Vancouver mm. or in New York, they've got their own specific communities, which are not just made up of Muslims. You know, another Muslims in Pakistan have, have Christians in their communities, they could have Hindus. It's how you get together as a community and talk about the issues you face. If it's in Pakistan, you might be access to water, clean water, or where I live, it's about unemployment and homelessness. Mm -hmm. In New York, when I speak to people, it's a, pretty much the same thing. You know, it's about survival. So you ask the communities that, you know, who you're part of, make it democratic, you know, and, you know, um, to kind of pinpoint some of the issues that concern them, that are important to them that are going to be substance abuse or could be depression, you know, could, you know, there's a myriad of things going on today in modern society, but not just that in developing countries, we're seeing it too. It's mainly obviously financial impoverishment because of, you know, um, uh, you know, it's quite structural for them. But even there, like I said, the Grameen Bank has helped. So in my communities, it tends to be um, giving people the tools to deal with depression, anxiety, mm -hmm. you know, modern living is very hard. So mindfulness is a massive thing in, in Britain. I don't know if it's like in, um, you know, where you are, but I know that in the West, mm -hmm. it tends to be quite a lot. So, you know, it's things along those lines. Yeah, for sure. And while you were talking about mindfulness, I was just thinking back to actually what one of our previous guests, Ismet, said about prayers being a form of mindfulness. And that really reframed the way that I think about it, because a lot of the time I feel like I haven't had a personal collection with like or connection, sorry, not collection uh, with Salah, like the formal Salah. Um, but I will meditate, for instance. Um, but kind of reframing Salah as a chance to meditate, as a chance to be mindful, has been really helpful for me, actually. No, absolutely. I, I want to mention that. You're right. I mean, and different Muslims from different denominations, like say Sufis have Dikir, you know, and there's a lot of chanting going on. And, you mm -hmm. know, of course, it's the element of Salah itself is, um, you know, quite meditative, you know. It's, mm -hmm. you know, obviously going through that. Or even if you're reciting, you know, um, the names of Allah while, you know, with the Tasri, you know, or just reading Salah itself is like exercise as well. So, yes, there's elements of uh, that in our faith, you know, mm -hmm. in Salah, it's there. But what I meant is obviously broader because not everybody prays, 
you know, even Muslims are quite secular. Mm-hmm. Lots of them, you know, they're culturally Muslim, you know, they don't really pray all the time. And But I found peace though, you're right, absolutely. You know, when you read Salah, or you read the Quran, and you go back to our scriptures and you engage with your faith, mm-hmm. there is a meditative aspect of it because you're taking your mind off everyday things. Yeah. And Salah is good for your mind and body because exercise as well. I always find, you know, I like prostrating and, and, you know, it just takes me out of, and when I recite the Quran, you know, or verses of the Quran, it takes me out of my space. So that's quite similar to mindfulness techniques that I've tried as well. And I've explained that to my colleagues and friends, yeah. you know, who do that, you know, and I, because I've tried it to mindfulness, I've tried yoga as well. And I, and I said, oh, there's similarities to my page, and I explained that to them. So you've also shared with me previously a quote of yours. Um, as long as I have a voice, I will speak out for those who cannot be heard. So how does your vision of collective healing and perhaps the struggles and joys of your own life play into that? Well, for me, um, you know, I come from Pakistan and Bangladesh background. My father is from a Pakistani Pathan on borders of Afghanistan as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. a Pathan background, my mother, Bangladeshi. We were some of the poorest communities in Britain. Mm-hmm. So you know, we talked about Indians in my like country. Um, they had a level of education attainment that people like me didn't. Mm-hmm. And we inhabited the working classes in mm-hmm. Britain, these kind of jobs they did that we inhabited, you know, blue collar jobs. So mm-hmm. up and down Britain in Bradford, you know, they were all mills, they just called them mill towns in Lancashire, mm-hmm. you know, Oldham, Burnley. There were riots, you know, that in the year 2000, and that's after 20 years after they closed down, there were riots you know, mm-hmm. in those places. And where I live in Luton, it's the birthplace of the English defense needs. I don't know if you've heard of them. Mm-hmm. And it was the headquarters of an Islamist group in Europe, in the UK, called Al-Muhajirun, where based in my town. Mm-hmm. So, and it, they, they were started um, by um, Omar Bakri Muhammad. And um, he's from the Middle East. He was a, a cleric from the Middle East. And the reason why they set up in places like mine is because we hadn't healed collectively. You know, we were scarred by racism. And the only thing we had to hold on to was our faith. I've written about this in my town. It's called um, Voxels in Luton, you know, mm-hmm. the socio-economic legacy. Mm-hmm. And up and down our land, you know, in our countries, Bangladeshis and Pakistanis are perceived as uneducated mm-hmm. and working blue collar. Not so much now, but when I was growing up, because now they've gone into the professions, you know, doctors, lawyers, dentists, you know, it's changing now because, you know, now you've got third generation, my parents first generation, me second, and mm-hmm. I've got nephews and nieces, and, you know, it is changing, mm-hmm. but when I was growing up, and collective healing was something we never heard of. Mm-hmm. Everybody I knew had an arranged marriage. Mm-hmm. My sister got married 17 years old to someone from abroad, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So everyone I knew was like that. You know, we came, we had, you know, one foot in this country, but another foot in South Asia, be it Pakistan or Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like, you know, North America where, you know, the people who settled there were more educated, you know, it was a brain drain, you know, mm-hmm. you had many people settled there who, you know, would, um, were f- uh, f- uh, fulfilling jobs um, within the industry, say the IT or emerging industries mm-hmm. in finance or, you know, they had an education, so I'm say, they were educated people from countries like Pakistan, Bangladesh and India. When Britain is not like that, because, you know, our history goes back hundreds of years, we've been coming and working, you know, ever since the Industrial Revolution, but particularly the post-war period, you know, when they lost a lot of people. We, you know, from the 50s onwards, you know, we're working in their mills, you know, and you see us, you know, with kind of broad Yorkshire accents and mill accents or mine, you know, from down south where mm-hmm. I live. And we are part and parcel, but we never healed as a community. We went to the mosques, but we didn't even know our own faith mm-hmm. and understanding. What we knew 
you know, is that it gave us community. You know, the mosque became like a community center. When I was young, when I used to go to mosque, it was actually a community center where we met each other. Mm-hmm. You know, so much more than just a place of worship. We knew, all right, it's the house of God, but that's where you'd meet your uncle mm-hmm. and your cousin and, you know, the guy down the road. And that's where we felt first because we didn't go to the pub, you know, or the bar to drink, you know. But we hadn't healed and we didn't know what Islam was. So you know what happened was in the 90s, you had the rise of Islamism in mm-hmm. Europe, particularly in the UK. You had it in France as well, which got a large Muslim population. But particularly UK, France, what we had is Islamists coming to our community. Mm-hmm. And they saw a fractured community. Like you said, we hadn't healed. We were, we were damaged people who mm-hmm. did, you know, because culturally, if you think about it, we come from a part of the world, which is the birthplace of Hinduism, Sikhism, and Buddhism. You know, it, it is the land of the Indus. Uh, uh, valley civilization which predates Islam so mm-hmm. we had a lot of issues even with Islam and how we fit into that you know people would call us in the Middle East miskeen you know, impoverished you know and we were known as converts to Islam so mm-hmm. we were always striving for a true Islam you know mm-hmm. to distill it to such a point where and that's where the Islamists came in they kind of gave a narrative to people like say in my town another middle town you know where the jobs had dried up mm-hmm. where there was no work you know it was happening you know, in Europe too, it wasn't just in the UK. And because obviously with then we were part of the European Union. We are not anymore, but we mm-hmm. were then, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it was happening. And I noticed, they, you know, the reason why they filled the void. And, and they did it because we were damaged and we hadn't healed. And we hadn't found our own way, our own voice, our own journey. Mm-hmm. And the reason why we hadn't found that is because we were an uneducated community. My father mm-hmm. works in Vauxhall. My mom was a cleaner. Today, I have undergraduate and postgraduate degrees. And... I have a good life. Mm-hmm. I have a middle class life, and the way I speak is not the way they speak. Because I went to school here, and I was educated here, mm-hmm. and I've cultivated a way of life. And being a gay man as well, I've always had that. It's not that all gay people working, you know, theatre directors or working or theatre critics. Because mm-hmm. I've had those jobs too. You know, when I left school, I worked in factories. Because in England, those days you could leave at school at the age of fifteen. In those yeah. days, and I was born in 1974. Like I said, I've got siblings who are older than me in the fifties. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Britain is a very, you know, can be very impoverished in parts. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously it's not just the Queen and London and Buckingham Palace. Well, you know, I'm not saying that in Canada with you guys now, social media, you know the truth now. But mm-hmm. once upon a time in North America, America particularly, and your neighbor America, and, you know, to a lesser degree, Canada as well, because you're part of the Commonwealth. You mm-hmm. always kind of had a, you know, a con- you know, you had contact with us because you, you know, uh, Queen visits your country and the royal family, regular, you know, tours. Mm-hmm. But you kind of knew more about us than say America did because they always had that kind of old fashioned attitude, obviously the revolution in America. And they don't know who we are and we don't know who we are. The only point was, you know, the Islamists told us you have to be this way. And it, it resonated, you know, that mm-hmm. Islamist message resonated with so many young people I met, you know, who are unemployed, who weren't working in an Iraq war. They would talk about stuff like that. They talk about 9-11, which resonate with them, especially when you haven't got a job, you're marginalized, mm-hmm. you know, and it wasn't just, as simple as that. I know there's geopolitics involved, but in a town like mine, where people are not working and unemployment in my community, the Asian community, the South Asian Muslim community, was twice the national average. You know, so we were so easy pickings for the Islamists. When they came into our community, you know, uh, many, you know, were, you know, um, favorable to them, to what they were saying. They were, you know, um, you know, they were. Um, understanding that point of view because they thought, hold on, you know, we've lost our way. That we're Muslims, but we don't practice. We're Muslims who act like Hindus and Sikhs. Mm-hmm. You know, because some, you know, you know what I mean. Some of the guys used to drink, and some of the girls never used to wear hijabs, and mm-hmm. you know what I mean. And they used to, you know, and the Islamists came in with a different message. 
Mm-hmm. They used to miss messages in the 90s. I saw it myself. Mm-hmm. They get your foothold. They were talking about homophobia. You know, they were talking about, you know, uh, yeah. the, what the rhetoric was homophobic. Because mm-hmm. I would come out of mosque and I would see guys with a stool and they would have literature there. And we're talking about gays in mm-hmm. such a way, gay people, that I'd never heard before. Because before, we were seen but not heard. We were tolerated. Don't get me wrong, we weren't accepted. But like, you know, there wasn't that kind of rhetoric where, oh, death, you know, gays deserve the death penalty. It wasn't Salafist or Wahhabist in nature. Yeah. You know, we were Sunni Wahhabi, or sorry, Hanafi, mm-hmm. but we weren't Wahhabi. And mm-hmm. we went to a local mosque, which was like, say, Pakistanis or Bangladeshis, you know, mm-hmm. uh, inhabited. But they were coming up with something else that we'd never heard of before. They were talking about women in misogynistic terms, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, stuff that I didn't grow up, like I said to you, I, was, I grew up with human rights, understood, you know, and, and uh, there was a saying, La ikla hafideen, which means there's no compulsion in the deen of Islam. Mm-hmm. My grandfather was an imam, by the way, in Sadej. Mm-hmm. My grandfather, he marched with Mahatma Gandhi. Mm-hmm. So, and my father worked in a factory. So we had people in a factory yeah. who had links to the Indian subcontinent partition. So that's mm-hmm. the kind of country you grew up in. And that's why I spoke up. When I heard someone say, hold on, gays de- deserve to be pushed off a building. I said, what? Mm-hmm. What are you talking about? And you know, I had a foothold in the community that I was born in. They could not, do you understand? I had the, mm-hmm. the power to do it. That's why I did it. And the only reason why I did it is because I wanted those people to understand that some people are being pushed off rooms in other countries or they're being sentenced to death, you know, in other countries where they don't have rights. And here we have human rights, you know, where you have the right to practice your faith in a Western liberal democracy, secular democracy, which is Great Britain. A liberal Western secular democracy gives you the right to practice your faith. That does not give you the right to discriminate, discriminate against another, you know, or call for death penalty you know, or discriminate in any way, because you're lucky to have a voice. You, you know, we have more rights in this country than we would in any Muslim country. So that's why my fight started in my town. But you know what, then I took it nationally, and then I've grown, you know, I took it internationally. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've grown as a person through it. So you were talking about how the South Asian community in particular was fractured and damaged from the histories and legacies of colonialism and partition and poverty, et cetera. Um, how is that changing now? Have you noticed differences? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's vastly busy. Look at London, the mayor is Sadiq Khan. I know Sadiq Khan. If you go on my Facebook page, you'll see a picture of me and Sadiq, yeah? Mm-hmm. And I've known him from before. You know, I've been on a you know, couple of things I've done with him before. I know I've been on television with him before. I've been, you know, like in um, the parliament, I went mm-hmm. to meet him and I've known him. Um, so he's a little bit older than me, a few years older than me. He's a bus driver's son. Mm-hmm. So that will tell you all about London today. If a bus driver's son, a Pakistani bus driver's son can become mayor of one of the most richest cities on earth, the most diverse cities on earth, mm-hmm. with the history we have, with arts and culture of London, everyone knows, anyone who's visited knows our arts and culture. So mm-hmm. that tells you what London has become. Mm-hmm. You know, United Kingdom has got its pockets. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are, like I suppose, even London has its pockets of poverty. Of course it does, any city that we know that, you know, when you peel underneath, you know, it's not touristy, like, you know, like anywhere in the world, you know, you go somewhere, but London particularly, I understand that because it's such a, isn't it like, you know, disparities, you know, you get that. But, you know, for the Asian community, look how far we've come, you know, you look at the cabinet, what we have, we have people in the cabinet, you know, one, our home secretary was Sajid Javid, brother Pakistani, mm-hmm. you know, he's not longer, but, you know, so we've had that from both parties. We have MPs who are from South Asian backgrounds. And I've met most of them because I know I've been, you know, mm-hmm. you go on my social media page, you'll see them. I've met most because of, of my work in the LGBT field. Mm-hmm. You know, I would have stood myself, you know, um, 
if I didn't have so many skeletons in my, cup, in my cupboard. But, you know, being a gay man, I was out there, you know, doing stuff with material my, you know, uh, community didn't approve of, you know. And in those days, you know, like gay clubs going out and doing stuff mm -hmm. like that. Those guys were, you know, hard and studying and doing stuff. Or, you know what I mean? Like with, with us, like with, with me, it's different, particularly because South Asians we used to go out to the clubs and to meet other gay people. And we were fraternizing in places where there's alcohol and that's, you know, frowned upon in my mm -hmm. faith. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but others, you know, who, you know, uh, they didn't say they had that because, you know, for them, it was all about race. It was mm -hmm. all about being a minority. And they worked hard, don't get me wrong. Sadiq Khan didn't just become mayor overnight. You know, he's an MP and he worked hard in his community. And he's had his battles like every other. We've got so many MPs now, mm -hmm. you know, and, and those towns and cities, you know, where their forefathers, now probably their grandfathers, settled. you know. Now, like I said, we've got third generation now um, who are growing up in Britain. You know, the second generation was me and the first generation because for some people are like parents. But do you know what? You find us in every walk of life today. Be you know, medicine, in sports, you know, you find us, you know, look at the cricket team, England cricket team, you know? So, you know, like, it's got um, British Pakistanis in it. Do you understand? So um, we are a very diverse place and, you know, it does give you opportunities, but not everyone shares in that. Mm -hmm. Not everyone shares in those opportunities because Britain, like I said, can be, but you know, the South Asian community has come on leaps, and particularly the Muslim community, being because majority of Muslims, I'm talking about South Asian, were from Bangladesh mm -hmm. and Pakistan, mm -hmm. quite impoverished nations. Like I said, we didn't always have, you know, the kind of education to fall back on. Mm -hmm. Like my mother, the cleaner, my father who worked in a factory, they did not understand theatre. I said to my mum once, I put on a play, for example, I said, Mum, I put a play on, oh, she would never go to London. You know, but I said in Luton, I put the play on so she could come. I said, Mum, I want you to come. She said, What do you want me to do? I said, I want you to come. She goes, You want me to clean the, the stage? She started to say, that That's not a place for me. And she didn't say nothing else. My father's passed away now, but my father, you know, he wouldn't have understood yeah. what I was talking about. I should talk about Noel Coward and people like that, you know, who I was interested in, and um, Oscar Wilde, you know, great luminaries of literature. And stage and screen, obviously, Noel Coward being a famous British actor. My father never spoke like me or understood. Me being a gay man gave me another avenue of life, which I could follow, you know? And it was far from there. Like, it's like, you know, it's like I didn't know them. You know, I'll be honest, you know? So like today, that generation now, they're people like kids going up today. I've got nephews and nieces, yeah? So, and, I, you know, my siblings were born here. So think about that. I don't have any children of my own. But that's the generation we're talking about. Their parents are my age. And so, do you understand? We've come far. We've come far from those guys who, after the Second World War, we were flaring partition in 47. And we settled here. You know, because we, lo we, had, we lost so many people during the Second World War, fighting in two world wars. And we went back to our country, respective countries. We saw that nothing had improved for us. So that's why we came here to our motherland. It was called the motherland, wasn't it? It's called our mother country, was Britain. We came here. Look how long we had to fight. You know, to 70 years now, our presence, uh, even before that, obviously in the subcontinent, people used to Maharajas and people, students been coming to Britain and Gandhi studied at the Temple Bar in London. And so many people did. But I'm talking about, you know, mass migration really from the post-war period. We mm. built Britain. Mm. You know, we built Britain after the Second World War. It was bombed out after mm. the Blitz. You know, the Blitz, they called it in London and other parts, not just in London, Coventry, like Luton, Wiley was bombed out. Other parts of Great Britain was bombed, you mm. know. Uh, where we had factories in Luton with a munition factory, so they bombed that, you know, the, the Nazis. And so, you know, growing up, you know, um, you know, 
I remember that obviously there weren't bombs sites when I was growing up, but it was still being redeveloped. Britain was still developing. So it was only the 80s when I really felt in the whole Docklands in London, I saw, you know, became developed today. It's like obviously the financial capital now, but Canary Wharf. And, you know, it's one one though, isn't it? Like obviously New York and London, and you've got like in um, Japan, the Nikkei Dao, you mm-hmm. know, London Stock Exchange, you've got the Financial Times, and mm-hmm. New York, you know. Um, you have the stock exchange there, the Dow Jones, and then uh, the Nikkei Dow. So those are three places. London. Imagine I have to go to my country to live in East London. Mm-hmm. And that was a strong throw from Canary Wharf today, where all the, you know, there's a large expat um, North American community there. You know, mm-hmm. you know, hundred thousand people from America live there, and tens of thousands from your country live there, mm-hmm. work there. Mm-hmm. You know, and all over the world. Yeah. You know, and we are a part of that. When they meet people like us. Do you know what? When I started doing this type of work, you know, my benefactor, people who financed us, were South Asians. They would come up to me and say, how much money do you need to do that? I ain't got the money to do this one. I'm from Luton, for God's sake, and I used to write, you know, little pieces of stuff here and there. I didn't, you know, really have the money. Do you know who helped us? These people, you would, you know, they are business people. They were in all avenues of life, but they were successful. I met them personally. You know, some of them were expats who mm-hmm. came from Pakistan and Bangladesh. But me, I said I wanted to do something, give a voice to uh, Muslims all over the world. London was a place I went to. I gravitated straight mm-hmm. away, I went there, I met with them, and they said, come on, you know, no other place in the world would I be able to do that. Because I know life is hard in New York, because I've been to New York. You know, I've been all over um, America. I've been to California, West Coast. I've, been, I've traveled all around America. I've got relatives who live in New York, by the way, mainly. But I've been in other parts of America too, and I know it's like so Europe as well. Many European countries I've visited and been, I know how hard it is. And obviously, because of my citation rules, I've traveled quite widely internationally. But London, you know, is a place where everyone that I knew from the colonial world gravitated to. And citations will come so far. You will not believe, but you know what? I only think, you know, only get a habit is not everyone's shared in that success. And many of us from the citation communities, uh, you know, um, have suffered discrimination, particularly after 9-11, you know, when it came to jobs and um, just societally as well. Nowadays, you know, the racism is much more uh, subtle. It's not the covert, you know, um, sorry, overt racism, sorry. Yeah. It's more covert now. Mm-hmm. Before it's overt racism, you walk down the street and someone, you know, they use the word Paki. I don't know if mm-hmm. it's the word they use in Canada, but in Britain, they use the word Paki short for Pakistani. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, and, you know, like, but those things are gone now, largely. Because now, obviously, we're in 2021. It still happens that if there are places where there's no people of color, you still might have trouble. But most places, you know, you won't. But, you know, I just feel it's much more subtle and covert today. The kind of racism is pernicious. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about discriminating against someone for work. Because they feel their own working classes are not working. You know, you've got poor people in Britain not working. And in Europe as well, not working. They think, you know, these guys, forgetting that we were born here and that we grew up here, you know, so that's the kind of thing we battle against, really, as citations that, um, you know, but we've come of age, though. we are a community that's come of age, and there's no stopping us, how are you going to, because now, like I said, we were born in here. where are we going to go? I can't go anywhere, mm-hmm. and they used to say when I was young, that, you know, a dog can be born in a stable, it doesn't make it a horse, mm-hmm. honest to God, people used to say that to me, right. you know, meaning that you're born here doesn't make, because, you know, we should still speak our parents' language, you're at home with you know, we were bilingual and we speak that in our food. But today, the kids, you know, growing up to their mind, nephews and nieces, they don't even, you know, they feel, even though I was born here, they didn't accept me. Mm-hmm. Like, 
I'm talking about, you know, 25, 30 years ago when I was growing up. Today, what are you going to do? You know, you can't you can stop them because they're part of the, the cultural fabric of this country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you talk about like this subtle, pernicious racism. How does your work with the Muslim LGBT network kind of tackle this or work to challenge this? It's really from what I explained my own experience, being an intersectional human rights activist. It's the overlapping nature of racism, you know? It's, you know, um, and intersectionality is all about that. Intersectionality is about, you know, how racism, color, sexuality can all feed in Mm -hmm. the same thing. You know, Um, any type of prejudice, Mm -hmm. you know, comes from fear, you know, comes from a misunderstanding. So my work, I said, oh, I'm bigging myself up. Because like I said, I stand on the shoulders of giants. People came before me and the work they did. So mm-hmm. I'm not trying to big myself. And even like the Muslim TV network, other people who helped me and do great work, or even greater work than I do. Mm-hmm. The reason why, because like I said, I, I, you know, my work was you know, suited to this because like I said, it's, in, in, it's intersectional. It's the intersection between all those things. And you have that in your country mm-hmm. where someone might be gay, Muslim, and a person of color. So they have, they'll have those experiences. And we are all a composite of our parts, our sum of all our parts and mm-hmm. our life experiences, our lived experiences. Mm-hmm. We bring that with us. So what happens is like, as a gay Muslim man, when I walk into a room, a lot of times what they see first is me, my color, or my name. And I tell them my name is Yijal Khan, a funny sounding name, which is not really an anglicized name, mm-hmm. you know? So you understand, when I walk into a room, they're not gonna automatically see a gay guy unless I've got a pink feather bow and I'm doing jazz hands when I come in, mm-hmm. you know, which I don't normally do. Yeah. You know, so do you understand what I mean? Like, you know, it's it's the way we're portrayed sometimes, you know, in, in my, in, in Britain, when we had the media, we'd always try to focus on, you know, the, um, the hijra community, mm-hmm. or, you know, they call it drag because, you know, th- there's a whole traditional drag uh, in Britain and Woodville and, you know, the whole kind of um, theatrical. Um, so well, I understand because, you know, um, I come from a theatrical background, but they'd like to feature that, you know, me, you know, um, people cross-dressing, you know, and stuff like that. Because they, they feel threatened by the Muslim man. So a lot of times it's um, kind of, you know, the Muslim man is always seen as weaponized in Europe, mm-hmm. you know, because I can't always speak for North America because I don't live in your country. So, you know, obviously I'm talking back from a European context really, because obviously Europe, we were part of the European Union until recently. So I can't say that much because I've grown up in 72, we joined the EU, which was the mm-hmm. you know European Union then. So you know, I can say that pretty much I've grown up my whole life in the European mm-hmm. Union. So and I've been to European countries, Muslim completely, and I have friends there. So yeah, we are seen as weaponized, you know, like, like Muslim men particularly. So when they did refer to us or show us, they show us in a, under the auspices of drag, you know, tied to kind of feminize. You know, they would always look at like that, you know, the feminine Muslim man. So to, you know, uh, because they're uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. with sometimes machismo that went with some Muslim men, or the testosterone, you know, mm-hmm. and the patriarchy within our communities. So that's that one thing that, you know, we'll focus on a lot when they featured gay Muslims, particularly I saw in the media, it always be through the prism of drag, cross-dressing or hijra, you know, or the mujras like in this country, you know, like we had a movement of, you know, the hijra community in this country we have because they emulate uh, or they reflect what's happening in the South, Asian subcontinent, obviously with the hijra community in Pakistan, Bangladesh, and India as well, because obviously hijas come from Hindu scripture as well, and, mm-hmm. and then Islamist Muhammadan 
which is Rajanta, but it's not referred to as Hijra in the Quran, but in the Hindu uh, scriptures, the Vedas, they refer to as Hijra. And the Hijras really come from that. It's, it's a great um, Vedic tradition, it's a Dharmic tradition. So, and that's what I work with, because I work with people who producers used to, um, you know, talk to me about what to make a film, this and that. And I just say to them, hold on, we're not just Hijras. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a, you know, both because there's, they, they they don't even consider this as trans, trans, you know, as a trans community, trans sexual, because they think there's a both spectrum within even Hijra, third gender, some do, you know, identify as trans, but, you know, I, I, I explain to them it's broader than that, you know. So to understand who, who we are is to be visible and talk mm -hmm. about it. And what the wisdom is being that what we do is just give a platform to people, just, you know, whatever you want to communicate, do it, but let's do it through community guidelines, which we've all consented to, which is a safe space for everybody and, you know, respecting one another, no HB and such like, you know. But when it comes to racism and the way we're viewed, it's always often like through Western, you know, prisms. Mm -hmm. It's through, you know, Western eyes, because mm -hmm. the only contacts they have, cultural reference points is sometimes maybe the Hijra community. They know all the Hijras in South Asia, so we'll do a program about Hijras, mm -hmm. you know. And they've got a guy like me, they don't know how to always handle me. You know, and I know so many other people, you know, men, women, non-binary, genderqueer people, you know, we don't always get represented in a proper way because we never had a voice. Like I explained to you, the whole kind of historical structural racism that goes on in Britain and other countries like the USA. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, we had histories like in Britain as well, similar because, you know, you had such large, diverse communities. I know you have them too in Canada. You, you're a very diverse country too. I'm not trying to say it's not because, you know, I know it is, you know, but, you know what I mean? Like obviously Britain and America, we're, we're quite similar in our demographics in that way, you know, and because, um, you know, some of the problems we've had, but in America much more obviously civil rights, but in our country, you know, uh, it still goes down. Look at how Shilpa Shetty was treated, like, you know, when she went on Big Brother UK in India, their protest. I don't know if you were aware of that. You know, I know Shilpa Shetty is not Muslim, you know, but I'm saying like, you know, as someone, a Bollywood actress who was on our Big Brother, you know, we had a Big Brother uh, reality, program mm -hmm. and you should see the way they treated her god it was awful mm -hmm. you know why would you like you know and, and they were wondering why you know they were protesting in india well mm -hmm. if you call a shilpa papadom you know and you didn't understand mm -hmm. like you know and she's an eloquent person you know um who's proficient in the english language you know who's an actress who lives in mumbai if she can't uh, get along with those people in that house how the hell can we, you know, she, do you understand what I mean? So the, it's all written for the hypocrisy, you know, that goes on. The Shilpa Shetty was discriminated against someone so eloquently speaks beautiful English, better than me. You know, she lives in a great, you know, like, look where she lives in Mumbai, a very cosmopolitan place and an actress who's well-traveled. And, and she didn't do anything uh, to, you know, you know, upset those people in the house. It was just her, her and her name and where she came from. Because they, they weren't really aware of who she was. She's a Bollywood actress because a lot of those people who were there they didn't really watch Bollywood. But the producers probably knew that, or the Libya South Asian community, not just in Britain but across the globe, will watch it, you know. But that's what I mean. I'm, I know that's a frivolous example because maybe okay, she's not Muslim, she's not LGBT, but do you understand what I mean? Like in Britain, mm -hmm. like we don't have our representatives, mm -hmm. even my generation, there was no one from us that actually said that, oh, you know, we look to say Pakistani character like Imran Khan mm -hmm. or you know. Um, or some Bollywood actor would yeah. say, oh, he's a Muslim or she's a Muslim, or some LGBT person you'd see in the media. But 
you know, they wouldn't necessarily be openly Muslim. I didn't see them in Bollywood, openly gay actors or lesbian actresses, you know, nothing that I knew of. You understand? There wasn't any reference points for us. And today, you know, Great Britain is that kind of place. There is a lot of structural racism, you know, Black Lives Matter. I was heavily involved in Black Lives Matter campaign when we happened. Even though it happened during lockdown, I still went out and I had to do it. What way I can even in my own town where I was in, but I can like I connected with people from different groups, and you saw that you know the image I sent you, mm-hmm. you know, and I work with uh, a rainbow network that goes across the world, and that's not just through my organization, that's me mm-hmm. as an individual, yeah, you know, because I've met so many people in my time, you know, so, but yeah, I mean, you know, uh, structural racism is something we're coming to terms with in particularly America and Great Britain, th- those. Countries where you have large, extremely large, you know, um, ethnic minorities that have been discriminated mm-hmm. against mm-hmm. for you know, from you know, a long time. Yeah. You know, it's not going to happen overnight. But I'm hopeful. I'm happy. I'm very lucky. You know, I've got an education. Uh, you know, I'm very middle class now today. Although I came from working class family, mm-hmm. and my friends and the people I know and I've met and the, the work I do. So I'm very lucky. But my people are not that lucky. You know, the, the people I came from. And that's why I do, and I speak up. You know, we, we go back to the point why I speak up for them. Because some, like when I go to Pakistan or Bangladesh or India or countries that my descendants came from, you know, I speak up for them too because they're still fighting, you know, Section 377, the 1860 Penal Code, which the British left. Mm-hmm. You know, when you talk about Pakistani, it's not Sharia law that prohibits them, you know, from practicing. You know, like from you know, for being an openly gay person, it, mm-hmm. uh, um, it's section three seventy seven, the age of sixty penal code. The British left to prohibit homosexuality in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. You know, which comes from British law, and many aspects of Pakistan's law is based on British law. So is Bangladesh's three seventy seven, mm-hmm. which India scrapped. I was at a party. I was at the you know the scrapping party. It was called the Indian High Commission organized it. They oh, they invited me, little old me from Luton. I went all the way to London, and there was a party. There were people like expats Indians, you know. Who lived in London, and there were British Indians too, and we were all. Came, I came because Muslim Majibin met because we have Indian people, you know, who are part of our uh, membership too, and or people of Indian heritage, to say more broadly. And I went there, and I met so many people, and that's all on my social media. You'll see, and like you know, it was great because you know, I was talking to an activist from India, you know, and we were, you know, we were just swapping notes, and other people, and you know, Sikh activists, Hindu, Muslim from India, and other. Um, you know, expats, and I said people, you know, um, in their heritage. And when I met them, I realized, hold on, you know, there's a parallel between what's happening. And that's what I mean, just speak up for, you know, we should all do that. Today, you know, on social media, we can share, you know, what we believe in. We're all activists today. When you share a meme, you know, on a certain subject, say, what's just happening in Pakistan, whatever it is, I'm saying example, giving, like you say, honor killings in Pakistan or, you know, in Bangladesh, when you're talking about, you know, poverty or garment workers. When we share something today, it goes global, it goes viral. And that's the power because we're all activists, we're all across the world, anyone who has access to social media, be it through a smartphone or like I'm talking to you. So that's what I mean, like, you know, a speaker, and it's not just me, I'm saying to you, to anybody, to your viewers and listeners, or listeners, because obviously it's a podcast Mm -hmm. listeners, but you know, uh, to understand that we are all activists and anything that we share can go global. It's not because it's positive. helping humankind that we have a duty to do that and we like you know uh, this is a, a time in history that you know um, is like no other where mm-hmm. i can talk to someone in islamabad right now or like i'm talking to you halfway across the world 
-hmm. in Ontario, and I'm sitting in across the Atlantic in Great Britain, mm -hmm. you know, that used to be, you know, one of your colonial masters, you know, part of the colonial world, you mm -hmm. know? So do you understand that I speak to people, you know, I spoke to someone who was living under ISIS territory, who I mm -hmm. never heard of again, was a gay man. So I dare to think what happened to him. Mm -hmm. But he used to communicate with me. I used to tell him that do not communicate to me if it's going to be against your personal safety because I don't want him to get caught and I, if it finds out. And I warned him about that. It was him because, you know, you yeah. mentioned that. And now, so you understand, so stuff like, imagine that someone who's living in ISIS territory could be, you know, sentenced to death, you know, or executed or thrown off a building, was speaking to me. And I didn't speak to him again. I was extremely worried and stuff like that's happened to me. And mm -hmm. I subsequently now obviously I'm, you know, I get the photos involved with that. If I do feel someone's in danger, and I always mention, I always like to tell people and advise them about, you know, their personal safety because it depends on your jurisdiction where you live. But if you think about it, we live in social media age, and that's what's having a voice is, you know, sharing a meme about what's happening in Balochistan in Pakistan or what's happening in Nigeria in Abuja under Sharia law or what's happening, you know, in India, you know, with the farmers. Mm -hmm. Do you understand what they're doing in Canada? Well, we've got one of the largest Punjabi populations in the world. Half the, you know, when you go to certain places in Canada, Vancouver, and such like, where some of the signs are in Punjabi, mm -hmm. and that. And in my country too, I tell the Muslims, say we have a duty, mm -hmm. you know, uh, to our brothers and sisters across the world, the Muslims who, who do not have the same freedoms we do. You know, you could do it on touch of a button, you can, but obviously be wary of your own personal circumstance, your personal state. I would not want to put anybody at risk anywhere, mm -hmm. even the UK sometimes. You know, but but what I do is we have a duty to speak up. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, before we wrap up, do you have anything that you would like any listening queer Muslims to take away from your stories? I'd like them to know that they're not alone, mm -hmm. that what they're doing is not wrong, mm -hmm. and to be the authentic selves. And it's for them to reconcile their own faith and their sexuality. It's their journey. Don't let anyone else tell them what they are, what they should do. And, you know, uh, what I, uh, I repeat what I said before, la ikra hafidin, there is no compulsion in Islam. We are not compelled to read five times a day or read one time a day or do anything. You know, in Islam, we can be whoever we want to be. You know, as long as we respect each other, uphold human rights, um, we have the right to peaceful living and dignity that we give to others. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you want to give your faith, you know, if you want to disaffiliate yourself or disassociate yourself, you can do that too. There's no apostasy. You know, you don't deserve the death penalty because you did that either. You don't deserve the death penalty because you are engaging in same-sex relationships. Mm -hmm. you, know? you know, what you can do is to be true to yourself. And if you still want to be Muslim, you can still be cultured Muslim. You don't have to be practicing. So I can say that you don't have to be practicing. Mm -hmm. And even if you are practicing and you can reconcile your faith and your sexuality, with Muslims, we come from different denominations, different parts of the world. You know, we have different cultural heritage. There's not all one homogenous group. I understand that. And you have to seek. If you want to seek religious guidance, seek it mm -hmm. from your own tradition. Well, whatever it may be, seek religious guidance. Speak to the ulama. We need some reference point. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it's for you to reconcile your faith and sexuality. It's something I did. It took me a long time. Yeah. It took me a hell of a long time. You know? And it might take you. But, you know, don't let anyone tell you how to be because our faith says we are not compelled to be anything mm -hmm. we do not want to be and to be a good muslim is to be a good human being mm -hmm. first and foremost mm -hmm. alhamdulillah 
Mm-hmm. So is there anything that you would like to plug or where can folks find you? It's just a Muslim LGBT network. We're on um, the internet everywhere, on social media platforms. But there's other groups like Hidayah, they're a British mm-hmm. group. They've not been around long, but five years now. Hidayah is guidance in Arabic. They're based in the UK, they're mm-hmm. LGBT Q plus group, but they do a lot of good work. And you know, what we do is like, if we're based in the UK, we still publicize, uh, you know, um, other stuff, uh, you know, uh, that's going on across the world, mm-hmm. you know, and Iman have been growing for, you know, 21, maybe 22 years now, one of the mm-hmm. oldest Muslim groups, that's in Britain, so I like to plug them too, Iman, mm-hmm. I've marched with them, they do great work, mm-hmm. you know, so just to say, you know, uh, to all the LGBT groups across the world, that there's a great solidarity movement that's happening across the world, what you're doing, mm-hmm. the queer Muslim resisting, mm-hmm. you know, what the great work you do, and it's not a mutual appreciation society here, I'm not brown nosing you guys, I'm telling you the God's honest truth. I've been online from Britain. If I can access you, there's many countries in the world that access what you're doing and why we are talking across the Atlantic, which is quite far. You know? So that's what I mean. You do great work and to show the visibility. You, you, you portray the visibility, you know, within our community. You make it visible. You, you, you show the diversity, you know, in our community. I've seen that, you know, some of the stories you've highlighted because you can go on the website as well. You know, and the stuff obviously on social media, we know with your Insta page and what you guys do is brilliant because, you know, you're doing it in your context, in mm-hmm. a brilliant North American mm-hmm. Muslim queer context. And what we're doing is a British Muslim yeah. con- context. And what guys are doing in Pakistan would be a Pakistani context. But one thing we all got today, remember social media. Mm-hmm. We've seen what happened in the Arab Spring with social media. Mm-hmm. We've seen with the power, you know, of good social media yeah. and bad. We've seen as well because with Trump being put in and how you know Facebook they say was responsible for him, but you know, and the rise of you know far right extremism on Facebook, you know, like not just Facebook, I don't want to you know single them out, but you know, social media in general. But all I'm trying to say is like, guys, this is a growing solidarity movement, the LGBTQ plus movement within Islam, and it's been happening for a long time, but it started with us guys living in the West because we had a voice and we were free. And we start to talk about, hold on, my brothers in Pakistan or Nigeria or my sisters in, you know, Jordan or Lebanon are not free. And people like you were speaking in, you know, where you are, in Ontario or in Toronto, in Vancouver or in New York, in America or in Los Angeles or well, I me mean, here. In Europe, we were speaking, French Muslims were saying. Because you know why? Because whatever problems we had, racism, structural racism, we were free to, you know, be who we were in that sense because we were protected by law on our statute books in Europe. M- most European countries has been, you know, homosexuality legalized. It's still, it's still in your country for quite a long time now. In America too, you know, we had a strong world rights in my country as well, you know. So we were protected under law. Uh, a lot of our brothers and sisters in developing countries across the world. I'm not. Let, please, let's not forget them. In, you know, I urge you, I urge your listeners all over, because I know you, you're obviously worldwide with the podcast, because I'm here today. But I know mainly I'm just talking to people, say, you, you're listening in um, Ontario. You know, if you're in Ontario, guys, just go out there. And, you know, it's not just social media sharing stuff, because, mm-hmm. you know, that's one way. But sometimes we have to meet up as well. And I know it's not always suitable. I'm talking about mainly in the Western context. If we meet up, what I do, you see there's pictures of me. You've seen, like, you'll see that I'm up there, saying, gazing Muslims unite, or we just made up banners and just put stuff out there, but we want to show that we have solidarity on the streets, it's not just the social. I know it's not that easy for people in certain countries, which are more autocratic. 
you know, or theocratic regimes, you know, who stamp down on stuff like that. So I'm not urging people to go out in the streets there. But I'm saying that like us who live in Western countries where relative safety, mm-hmm. you know, and, and if you're out, you know, or if you feel comfortable and it's a safe space, mm-hmm. please go out there. It's not just about social media, you know, go out there and demonstrate, mm-hmm. you know, go out there and show your solidarity to a community which is, which is worldwide, you know, we're all from one race, you know, it's the human race, mm-hmm. irrespective of religion, forget religion for a second. We're from one race, you know, mm-hmm. you in um, Canada and some woman in Lebanon, you no, know, and some person in Nepal, we're all from one race. You mm-hmm. see that in Ontario, you've got a large um, Asian community, not just South Asian, East Asian community, it's probably bigger in mm-hmm. Ontario, but like in all over Canada, God, you know, South Asian community is quite massive, depending where you are. Mm-hmm. Because I know Vancouver and stuff like that. I've got cousins. You know, I just tell them, just go and talk. Mm-hmm. And, and they're doing the same in, in New York. Because I tell my cousins in New York, talk, man. You know, you go out on Jackson Heights and talk. You know, like I say the same thing in London. We will go out on the streets of London. You know, people don't expect it. They don't even know we exist. You know, they just think we're an immigrant community. They don't even know that we're born here and we live here. You know, mm-hmm. so just say, go out there, you know make a banner if you can and just say, listen, you know, people in Nigeria don't enjoy the same rights I do, which, you know, Abuja's under Sharia control. Or, you know, it's not, you know, us going against our traditions. It's highlighting mm-hmm. the inequalities within our own faith. We're calling them out, mm-hmm. you know? We're not against our faith. We're not against our religion. Muslims are not inherently homophobic. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, it, it, it's a misreading of mm-hmm. the scripture. It's not understanding your faith and our traditions, which go back, you know, poets like, you know, Hafiz, you know, and Rumi, mm-hmm. you know, who wrote homoerotic literature mm-hmm. and the great traditions of homoerotic literature in the Quran and certain readings in the Quran, which could be misread as that, that too. I know that's a big contention about, but that goes on. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate everything that you've uh, said. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Hey, Taylor. Hi, Maha. Unfortunately, Nicole won't be able to join us today, so it'll just be the two of us having our debrief. Yep, yep. Adriel mentioned a lot in the episode, for sure. Mm -hmm. And there's, like, I feel like we have a lot that we probably want to talk about, unpack, like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) as we always do. Yes, so um, the first thing that I wanted to kind of mention today is, like, the history of South Asians on Turtle Island, because Adriel was talking about briefly the kind of presence of South Asians in the UK and Mm -hmm. what that's looked like over different times and spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought it could be an interesting topic to kind of look into a little bit on the podcast. Um, But I was having a lot of trouble specifically finding or tracing South Asian presence in so-called Canada. There's more resources on the States in particular. Mm. Um, And I only know about the Kamagata Maru incident quote unquote because of classes on colonialism and resistance um so for folks who aren't familiar with that it was a group of um i believe refugees from the indian subcontinent who had traveled um via sea boat (laughs) to (laughs) to um somewhere in canada the east coast was it east or west maybe it was west to be honest i don't know yeah we should have done our research i'm so sorry everyone but um yeah so they were denied entry into canada 
um, because Canada had specifically white exclusive mm-hmm. um, immigration laws, policies. Um, there's a lot of interesting resources that explain that a little bit more. Um, but two that I would recommend are a book called Unmooring the Kamagata Maru, which we'll link in the episode description, as well as a major research paper by Jespreet Renata called Transnational Modernity Slash Coloniality, Settler Colonialism, Environmental Justice, and Punjabi Diasporic Positionalities for Critical Solidarity on Turtle Island. So um, when I was trying to find resources, most of them that I did find were super neoliberal and glossed over the violence of the settler state Mm. and didn't trouble how models of citizenship are colonial. As they do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I recommend those two resources and um, we should probably link some resources as well on the history of Canada's whiteness and Mm. like its immigration slash settler policies because it's a shitty history on a side note i recently found out that canada's um uh like immigration booklet Mm -hmm. right like the the package that you get when you have to study for the test Mm -hmm. (laughs) briefly and when i say briefly it's like uh indigenous people like have been like have been harmed yeah some but doesn't call it like doesn't really talk about violence at all and it just you know, they talk about apologies, Stephen Harper's apology. Um, <laughs> but really, I, I I just, you know, you're saying there's, it's hard to find that history. And it's like, go figure. Yeah. Our government makes you study for this test to become a citizen and gives you a book that willfully ignores much of its history. So, yeah. yeah. But we, this is not news. No. And like the whole conversation about people of color and arrivants and settlers Mm -hmm. is a whole it's a I'm writing a paper on it right now and it's a whole minefield so we can talk about that another day yeah um (laughs) but it's I'll briefly mention that it's complicated to have or the presence of people on Turtle Island is complicated we can't necessarily just narrow it down to being indigenous or a settler um it's people have been brought here through coerced and involuntary means um slavery indentured labor etc that troubles the Mm -hmm. idea of a settler who comes to a land willingly and settles there right like you can't you can't call someone who is smuggled and trafficked a willful participant yeah let's be honest and yeah and so we've over time um, we've like I've been involved but researchers and academics have you know began to help us understand and I know you were talking about this with me help us understand the complexity of like indigeneity and what it means to be indigenous to a land mm-hmm. um and how that it it isn't just indigenous settler Mm -hmm. And like, also, what are our responsibilities when we're located in more precarious slash undetermined positions? Right. And what does it mean? Like, does it matter that we can't necessarily identify a specific label? No. Like, exactly. So (laughs) what I'm drawing on right now is the work of Mohammed John Benous, whose PhD dissertation, inshallah, will be published. And um, I've read a few chapters 
and I highly recommend people access it. We'll link it in the episode description, um, but he talks about the complications of settlerhood, and he talks about the complicities of people of color in settler colonial violence, right? Mm -hmm. And how in our queer Muslim resistance, we need to be troubling these concepts. We need to be troubling our own complicities. We need to be actively engaged in ongoing commitments, ethical, political commitments, that's the term, and responsibilities, that's the term that he uses, rather than focusing on our specific identity labels. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So something else that um, came up while we were listening to Ejil's episode um, to prepare for this debrief is the fact that hurt people hurt people when he was talking about Islamism. He basically told the story of, um, you know, there when he was growing up in his neighborhood in Luton, mm-hmm. Luton, mm-hmm. I hope I'm saying this right, um, before there was a time before Islamists came and and, and started um, infusing a certain kind of version of Islam to into the community, there was a sort of tolerance. It wasn't acceptance by any means of queer people and gave, you know, uh, relationships, but it, it was tolerance. And then after that infusion of Islamists in this in the community, mm-hmm. the rhetoric was much different. It was, you know, death to the gays and 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 all this, you mm. know, violence. And so it it prompted us, I think, it prompted us because we've often, I mean, I'm pretty sure we've talked about it here on the podcast, the idea of um, the infusion of queer phobia as a form of violence that was put on colonialized and marginalized people like Mm -hmm. recognizing that this 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 form of violence I think and I think Ejil mentioned this um by saying you know that's you know we have we've been not corrupted but you know this form of violence this form of queer phobia and and uh disdain for queerness that was infused into colonial regime it's it's politicized in the way where i'm losing my train of thought no, you're you're saying, it's politicized in the way where Col- colonialism isn't an invention of it's not inherent to um it's not inherent to the cultures of colonized folks right thank it's, you thank yes, you of course it isn't thank you it isn't inherent to you know otherness mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. like we have to understand this as something that is exactly that it mm-hmm. is political it is yeah. it's part of a system and you know we were also talking about if we think about how queerness is being and the idea of uh, freedom and and being out and all that stuff is also now being politicized as uh, a symbol of westernness a symbol of modernity mm-hmm. and any place that doesn't represent that becomes backwards, becomes other, becomes, you know, behind mm-hmm. the time, mm-hmm. literally behind time. We, mm-hmm. you know, like, wow, they're so, you know, they still do that there, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we have to trouble that history. Like we yeah. have to trouble that history. We have to trouble the yeah. idea that tolerance and 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 uh, uh, acceptance is something that, we found here yeah right like like we 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 found it 
in the West. We it didn't happen. It mm-hmm. didn't happen. And we obviously know some. We know when we experience queer phobia in real life that that's obviously true. Mm-hmm. But I think it's very easy to say, well, we've got rights. Yeah. We've got laws. We've got you know protections, and so our protections make us freer than the people over there right it that's not the case Mm -hmm. right like we can still point to how many black trans people are dying and being Mm -hmm. murdered Mm -hmm. like that is violence we know we see it we hear it every day but it's so easy it's much easier to accept the rhetoric of our rights are freeing us and we are safe and we have moved past Mm -hmm. violence to against other people who are still stuck they're still stuck and we know that that's not the case at all and those narratives are false they've they've been planted there right Mm -hmm. we've Mm -hmm. we've been taught to think that this is inherent Mm -hmm. and you've always thought this way and we know that that's not the case no exactly and like when we consider homonationalism or the idea that falling in line with state agendas of what's acceptable queerness and what's not acceptable queerness so being white upper middle class normative in all other aspects. Um, Ejel's right. We do face racism depending on, you know, your positionalities, various, und- sorry, and various other overlaps of, you know, privilege and oppression. Yeah. yeah. But through civilizational narratives um, that are, you know, projected by global hegemonic powers, it's made to seem like it's so much better in the West, the so-called West, than everywhere else. Yeah. But what does it mean to be in solidarity with folks transnationally? Yeah. What's always and already being done by folks in the global South? Resistance looks different in different contexts. I remember Sorry. in a, <laughs> <I'm> so extra <laughs> in a class that I took with our dear friend Yasmin. Mm. Um, it was called Gender in the Global South. I remember a lot of people were like, where's the woman? Like, what's the gender? What are we, where are the women in this class? Right, like, right, right. we need to study the women. And like, oh, the women are oppressed over there, et cetera. Like narratives, not as explicit as that, but those were the underlying, you know, in, implications of people's questions and concerns right. in the class. And so Yasmin was like, uh-uh, we're disrupting the syllabus where we are going to have a week where we look at resistance, from the perspective of Global South women. And um, so there was an article from um, Bitch Media. I don't remember the person, though I will link it in the episode description um, about how resistance is not always labeled as, you know, feminism or part of a specific movement or whatever. It can also be the daily interactions that people have with each mm-hmm. other, like survival right. um, and a whole bunch of other stuff. The article is more eloquent about this topic than me, so check that out. (laughs) But um, there's also um, a queer Muslim resource guide by Gina Ali and Samaya Hamisa, um, who Samaya, we've had the pleasure of, you know, speaking to on the podcast and Gina, inshallah, one day we will get together (laughs) and have you on the podcast. Um, But they so lovingly compiled a global queer Muslim resource guide so we will be linking that in the description. Awesome. Yeah. So, Ejil, there was a lot of information. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was trying to uh, take it. He's such a good storyteller. Like, mm-hmm. that's the thing. It's like, 
I'm trying to remember the stories that he told that he told us because it, it really I really did feel like I was living through his life mm-hmm. and, and and the work that he has done as as it lived through his life and so it was really lovely um listening to him tell the stories that we don't like we would never have gotten right mm-hmm. like we I don't know very much about people who I don't think I'd know anybody else who lived in London before who's from London so there you go and another queer Muslim so it was I enjoyed, I really thoroughly enjoyed that aspect of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, um, oh, going back to lateral violence, I just yeah. wanted to mention a good resource. Uh, Kei Chang Tom's book called I Hope We Choose Love mm. is fantastic. It's like a series of essays and poems and writings um, that center love, who would have guessed it, mm-hmm. as a radical politic, a way in which to relate to each other, a way in which we hope to choose to build the futures that we want to see and the presence that we want to see. So I highly recommend people check that out. It's like one of my top favorite books ever. It's great. So we can, I'll add music there. Another thing that I guess I wanted you to talk about, Taylor, uh, because you did a presentation on this in our master's uh, classes. Um, it's important to critique liberal democracies for what they are right. and how, or the, and for what they're not. Um, so I believe we've already talked about Lisa Lowe's uh, text, The Intimacies of Four Continents on this podcast, but we're gonna bring it up again because <laughs> it's relevant. <laughs> so, I guess what we, what I was thinking about this and what we briefly mentioned and talked about is the idea that liberalism is that narrative that if you achieve freedom, if you achieve uh, some certain level of modernity, so that's economic status, if you're queer being out, you know, generally speaking, you pretend not to be that religious, like, it, there are all these criteria, but if you achieve this general level of modernity, you are, you are a free agent, and you are able to make decisions in your life, right, mm-hmm. like, it's essentially the extension of you pull yourself up by your boot trinks, uh, uh, um narrative, or because, it it bases it bases um modernity and freedom pers- freedom really on personal mm-hmm. accomplishments personal mm-hmm. achievements mm-hmm. and and we're i guess i'm mentioning this and we mentioned this because it's really i mean it's important to think about how wealth and you know access to places and you know status moving up seeing and representation as well seeing people in in positions of of power we are trained to see and understand that as you know an achievement of quote unquote the american dream the canadian mm-hmm. dream whatever you want to call it some level of freedom and yes there's the reality of economic stability, economic mm. freedom. Like we accept and understand that, but it's not enough to say economic freedom, economic stability is freedom because mm-hmm. those you're still tethered to the, the market. You're still tethered to other 
you know, greed, capital greed, you're, you're, and capitalism does not want the majority of us to be economically stable, then the market wouldn't be, you know, what it is today. What it is today. Exactly. So I'm not an a, a economist, so I'm not out here spitting, you know, finance stuff. No, nope, <laughs> this is not that podcast. But the idea, I guess, that we were thinking about is the idea of seeing representation and seeing, you know, queer, Black, uh, BIPOC, people in positions of power or wealth or access and and viewing that as achievement for us all Mm -hmm. right viewing that as something that we Mm -hmm. we can celebrate communally because we read like who which backs did you have to step on to get there like Mm -hmm. you have to ask those questions and Mm -hmm. and it always comes back to we can't be free none of us will be free unless we're all free Mm -hmm. so if we're if we're if these if this perpetuates a system of you know liberal democracy aka not liberal democracy liberalism mm-hmm. um and the idea that you can be free you can attain your freedom through work and grit and 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 you know these, these steps to freedom and once you get it you'll be economically stable and 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 have no no, no worries no worries in the world like that you won't false. be oppressed we know that's false and yeah. we know that's predicated on building wealth yeah. really that's what it is it's building wealth and with that comes the power so mm-hmm. If we can start there and if we can start troubling that narrative and actually seeing the work that's being done outside of that, outside Mm of, you know, success stories and who was chosen to be successful, like how we define that success, it's, it's much more, I think, empowering to critique even the people who look like us and the people who we would expect more mm-hmm. from because then maybe then we can actually start having relevant conversations across economic lines across um um, um like communities right mm-hmm. I don't know maybe yeah. that was a little bit wrong but no that makes total sense because I think that ties into what Ija was saying about using um, South Asian Muslims or South Asians in particular um, in the UK as accessing positions of power and status and wealth um, as reference points for kind of the ways in which community has not progressed, um, but the ways in which communities change relationships to the state and to wider communities over time and space. But um, ultimately representation in politics in oppressive systems will not save us. Mm. And so I recommend the work of, again, Muhammad Jean Venus, a queer Muslim scholar. Um, have I already said that today? Yeah, you did, but this was in reference to something else. Oh, but I recommend the work of Muhammad Jean Venus, um, specifically the article, Transnational Decolonization is the Way Forward or um, Transna- is the Solution, sorry. Um, not movements such as Bernie Sanders and the Women's March. Another thing I want to say on like representation politics, so two things. Um, Ijo was saying that, the, you know, there was that South Asian person on one of the shows or whatever, mm-hmm. and they, you know, seemingly had all this access yeah. and, you know, cultural, you know, capital mm-hmm. and went on the show and was like, you know, people were being racist and were being absolutely, you know, was not being treated well. And that is the point. Like that's, yeah. that's the point. You can have that access. You can mm-hmm. have the wealth. You can have, you know, this, this capacity. Was it clout? I don't clout. know. Yeah. Like, you know, clout, you can have that. And 
still be shitted on like the rest of us. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. another point for everybody who, you know, loved and, you know, was like, go Kamala, like the first black um, and brown and brown don't forget vice the brown. i wasn't gonna forget it <laughs> the first black and brown vice president female vice president you know like oh representation we're getting places look at this what look at what she said recently about you know supporting israel like like we yeah. we can't look to representation it, through what like existing power structures through existing power structures exactly we can't look to it because we recognize that those people are not in it for you know deconstructing the system that no that that brought them there like they're not like you're if you're if you're rich you're not gonna want to get rid of capitalism you're gonna want to keep capitalism yeah so there it is yeah and that kind of links to the idea of respectability politics right so like if you behave in a certain way, if you achieve certain things, if you are meeting certain conditions, criterias of modernity, of civility, all defined by whiteness, right, Um, then you will be okay. Mm -hmm. But that's not the case. And we'll link an article on, sorry, on respectability politics in the episode description for your further information. Mm. Um, But going back quickly to that idea of transnational decolonization, I was just today reading or yesterday I can't remember the days are all a blur um I was reading time right (laughs) I was reading um an interview by or with feral feminisms with or wow an interview with Tiffany Lafabo King uh interviewed by feral feminisms um and she was talking about how decolonization has to be this, hold on, let me pull it up. Let me pull it up. It's right here. Okay, here's the quote. On a fundamental level, the process of decolonization requires that we are undone and unmoored by the idea of living in a way that requires mass death Mm -hmm. in its various forms. Say it again. In exchange for others' self-actualization. Say it again. By becoming undone, I mean, it really has to fuck us up in our core Mm -hmm. and make us relentless about seeking out and making alternatives possible. And also realizing that the alternatives can be much more pleasurable Mm -hmm. than the current situation that we are merely surviving. Also, decolonization is not just about the ascetic project, giving up things or giving things up, but fundamentally about creating new and pleasurable ways of living. Bring us in, Audrey Lord. Bring us in. Audrey Lord. Yeah, I know this was an Audrey Lord that was speaking, but she mentioned new pleasurable ways of living. And you know me, anytime oh. anybody talks about pleasure, the first thing I think about is Miss Lord, yeah. my mother, my spiritual grandmother, like we are connected. Who um, I bought a picture of or an art, like an artist's rendition of and for Taylor. <laughs> and she is currently sitting at the top of our living room. Wall, yeah. yeah. Living room wall. Yeah. Miss Audrey Lord and the erotic and just all of her work I stand that's Mm -hmm. all Mm -hmm. but um yeah so decolonization requires like a rupture in society right like it's it's not it's not a metaphor referencing that famous article by Eve Tuck and man I don't remember people's names but Tuck and Yang okay Tuck and Yang yeah, Yeah. yeah yeah 
Um, Look at you. You do remember people's names. You mm-hmm. I hear she, by the way, like Maha like does prepare some some like titles and stuff because she wants to remember, but she also is just off the cup. I remember this and like names articles. I can't name anything, okay? <laughs> So, it's that visual memory, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel that. I'm I like, Tuck that. and Yang, I've highlighted this too many times. <laughs> Another thing that Ejil said um, was the idea of the category of hijra as being broader than what the label trans can conceptualize. Um, and that reminded me of a specific chapter of a specific book by David Valentine. The book itself is called Imagining Transgender and Ethnography of a Category. And the chapter that I'm thinking of is chapter four, um, The Making of a Field. And it's about how the very categories of gender and sexuality and the distinction of homosexuality from transness are moder- modern technology and imposition of modernity. And they also trouble the meaning of modernity, but we can get into that another time. They criticize the assumption that sexuality is experienced as separate from gender and that they aren't experienced in complex intersecting ways. Uh, This leads us to ask if there is a distinction between gender and sexuality, Mm. right? Gender and sexuality become deeply entangled with each other, with one another, um, inseparable for those subjects whose senses of self are not mediated through an understanding of gender and sexuality as experiences separate from another or other aspects of daily life. So basically that references people who do not conceptualize themselves in an LGBTQ plus framework, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there exists a local set of conditions that determine how sexuality and gender are transformative. And they're not necessarily two distinct concepts, but they can be depending on the local context. This, okay, I'm I'm losing it a little bit here because I'm trying to remember the name of the author that- so, Gloria Wecker. Oh, you're brilliant. See what I mean? She's brilliant. What was the name of the book? Politics of Passion. The politics, I was like, passion something, passion something. Oh, she's brilliant. Okay, yeah, so exactly what Maha's talking about. Gloria Wecker, I, the first time I discovered it was in my fourth year of undergrad and I was like, oh, this is great. And then we revisited it in master's uh, in grad school. And um, Gloria Wecker's The Politics of Passion, in it, uh, they talk about, Matty work and so this is in Suriname and um the idea of you can't one cannot be a Matty but instead one does Matty work Mm -hmm. so the idea of Matty work as in sexual relationships that are fluid that what if one were reading it and trying to make sense of it in the west would frequently read and understand as queer or within the framework of LGBTQ plus but that makes no sense to someone who is from Suriname or who some who someone who does Matty work because it's not an identity label. You can't, you know, pinpoint someone as queer in the same way that you would do. Uh, well, you can't. Sorry, you can't pinpoint someone as a, a Matty because that wouldn't make any sense in the same way that you would, you know, in North America, pinpoint someone as queer. Mm-hmm. So the like the idea that sexuality sexual sexuality and gender are two distinct identity uh, distinct identifiable things that are always separate separate and static like we Mm -hmm. we're starting to undermine the idea that sexuality is static and gender is static Mm -hmm. like we understand we're understanding fluidity but there's still very much uh 
you know, you are this and this, and it makes sense culturally. Like, it's not to say this, you know, sh everything should all be undone. That's not the point. But the point is to undo the idea that this is the, the only, only way. way to think about it. Mm -hmm. And so if you start thinking exactly what you were saying, Maha, about the idea of um, sexuality and gender and moving, and especially what Idril said of the hijra and moving beyond this, the idea of transness as a label for transness and instead something that is more fluid than that or more expensive or more expansive that. thank you that's a better word more expansive than that it doesn't negate Trans transness it doesn't negate that you know one can be trans and that's a cultural thing but it also it's a cultural thing exactly it recognizes that there are different and different expressions mm -hmm. of gender and sexuality mm -hmm. and what those things can be like mm -hmm. for people around the world mm -hmm. And something you said, you said that it's not necessarily the point to dismantle the LGBTQ plus framework, but Joseph Massad would argue otherwise. <laughs> so um, Joseph Massad has written work on the concept of the gay international yeah. or the concept of like the LGBTQ plus framework being used to, as a form of imperialism, Yeah, right? Uh, like when we think again back to that conversation on homo nationalism yeah, and yeah. pinkwashing yeah. specifically in yeah. the context of Palestine or the context of the state of Israel. Yeah. Right. Like for folks who want more on pinkwashing, um, there's a great resource that we shared on our Instagram page uh, by Al Kos, the Pal or the a Palestinian queer organization, um, that kind of talks about how. Israel um, uses this narrative of being the only queer friendly place in the Middle East. The Middle East is also a term that we don't really want to use anymore. We prefer Swana, um, but it's a it's a it's a it's a colonial tactic, right? To kind of distract from genocide, mm -hmm. to distract from Israel's presence. And, and one could actually argue to justify, right? Like, yeah, oh, yes, you, yes, yes. If you go back to the idea of modern, barbaric, mm -hmm. like those dichotomies, mm -hmm. it, it's easy to paint, it's easy to understand who's, who's being, who's, who's being portrayed as what, right? Yeah. Like, if you're using this idea of acceptance mm -hmm. and, and freedom, quote unquote, for queer people in Israel as a good thing over Palestine, you also have to consider which what? queer people, exactly, <laughs> which queer people, who are the people you're talking about? Yeah. What is this even like, what is the purpose of this anyway? Like why mm -hmm. advertise this information, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Cultural capital, it, it, it's capital, it's, let me, I'm gonna stop. Yeah, because we could go on forever. Exactly. Yeah. And that kind of, Going back to, um, or speaking about the context of Palestinian resistance right now, um, Ijal talks about the power of social media activism. Mm -hmm. And someone I follow on Instagram had asked a question on their story about what people have learned recently regarding Palestinian resistance. And someone responded by saying what they once considered to be slacktivism, or like lazy online activism or online activism being a form of laziness. 
is actually super important given, you know, the recent Israeli attacks on Palestinian media outlets, because what is so central to apartheid regimes is the ability to control the narrative. And Palestinians on the ground are sharing live footage of like, you know, what's actually happening that's disrupting the narrative. The narrative of Israel being a justified legitimate state, <laughs> the narrative of Palestinians being the orientalist tropes of Palestinians, etc. Um, so yeah, online activism. Please do not stop sharing stuff about Palestine from Palestinians on the ground. We can't give up. We can't be complicit. We can't, people are asking us to share on social media because that is what is keeping the resistance alive. Um, right now globally in that sense so yeah thanks for listening to another episode of queer muslim resistance this would not be possible without the help of our lovely volunteers abrar and aram thank you for your time and support as always and as always you can find relevant links in the episode description make sure to check us out on instagram for links to our queer muslim resource guide to sign up for Tarif, a queer Muslim reading group, and for awesome queer Muslim content in general. If you like who we are and what we do, please do consider supporting us financially on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash queermuslimresistance for more information. That's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash queermuslimresistance. And you can email us at queermuslimresistance at gmail.com if you have any inquiries, additional resources you'd like to see added to the resource guide, or if you just want to say hi.